You're listening to the Rat Podcast. Explore wealth. Different model, a different way, different way of doing business. Mm-hmm. Parts of the country, twenty four seven, seven days a week. I was just done with the gurus. If somebody gives me thirty to fifty thousand dollars, that should be a lifetime relationship for Podcast Nation. Because if you give me that kind of money, I have an obligation, in my opinion, a responsibility to see you succeed. Well, hello everyone. I got Rachel Neighbors here, um, good friend and serious entrepreneurial success woman. Just kills it, and her company is growing incredibly fast. And I think some of our clips from our last podcast have been some of the most popular downloads. Rachel, when we got into kind of like world currencies and we got into crypto and some of the different things, and I know that goes, you know, some of it away from your core business, but you know, you're a master when it comes to you know knowing certain things. So, all right, enough talking. So, like I said, you had some cool artwork in the back, and so my first question is, you know, right off the bat, like, what do you do to stay, you know, just in that mind, in that state, you know, where where you're growing? Because when you're growing, you have no choice but to be in. In state, I know you, you told me earlier you guys have gone, you know, to, to 20 plus, you know, employees, um, and and from you know a handful of employees in the last year. And I mean, you always were always a great business before, so you must be going like crazy growth right now. We are we are growing really quickly right now. We're so glad to have new team members on with us. It's always it's always really inspiring to have people join in on your mission. So I'm just I'm just really 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 blessed and really happy right now. What about culture? Like, what do you, I mean, for me, because we're growing fast too, it's holding on to culture, build, building, re, reigniting new culture. What are you, what are you guys doing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question, actually. So, um, especially in a, you know, post COVID world. Um, so all of our team members are 100% remote independent contractors. So I know that term gets thrown around a lot now, like company culture, but I think it's really important to find a way to build company culture, especially if you have a completely remote or virtual team, which we do. So, um, you know, we have regular meetings with one another within various departments and of course our all hands meetings. And we just try to be really supportive of one another. We use Slack as our internal team communication. And I created something a little bit silly about six months ago, it's a Slack channel that we call the virtual water cooler and it's where everybody gets to come and hang out and talk about non-work stuff so this is where you post cat videos and pictures of your decorating your christmas tree or what you had for dinner and play people can tell jokes and it's just a really nice place for everybody to get to let their hair down and um, just get to hang out with one another in the work setting but still be able to really create those tenets of company culture Um, and I mean you know a lot of what we do to build a company culture happens in our onboarding when we bring new team members on but it's also reiterated in all of our company meetings or our department meetings. And there's a few tenants that are really important to us. So first is to operate as a team and a championship team, a dream team. We're all in this to be on mission and to serve our clients, to serve our customers. We're all laser focused on that mission. And that means, you know, when you're on a team, you pass the ball to this teammate, you expect them to pass the ball to you. There's cooperative, collaborative work together. But along with that, we also really try to cultivate and want to attract people to our team that have a radical sense of personal responsibility. 
that claim ownership of their work, that take ownership of their feelings, that take ownership of excellence in what they do. And I think when you can cultivate people that have a radical sense of personal responsibility and then get them to be able to play team and help them to play team with one another and let them have fun a little bit and let their hair down at the virtual water cooler, it turns out to be just really awesome. I mean, you're hanging out with these people for 40 plus hours a week. So our belief is that they should be people you actually enjoy spending time with. And, and we do. We all really like each other. So um, as we go from as we've jumped to like 60 plus people, right, I find that like there's as, as a CEO, you like you hear you hear like every piece of drama, right? You deal with every piece of like major drama, like people are going through. So, so there's like for us, there's a couple of things like we've tried to like key in on right with our people for cultural like intensity right support cultural background so like like health health issues like we try to key in on like when we see people that have gone through stuff like one one gal has a, you know slipped disc on her back and another one fell and hurt her knee and just covid right and 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 things that have happened we've had you know in the last year i don't know a dozen people you know catch covid thank god they're all real healthy and you know it's, it's interesting because we try to dive in into those moments right and 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 create, create that, that extra background, but it's like being listening, right? Being aware of what is going on in their, their lives. And, and sometimes it's hard too, though, because some of your strongest people don't tell you anything, right? They won't tell you when, you know, there's stuff that's going on in their lives and stuff. And so that's, that's one of the things we've done too. I really like the ownership part because like, I'm like literally like 19 direct reports, right? And like 14 or 15 of those are leaders that manage other people. And, and, you know, then I get to myself where, like, I have to have people that can own their universe. Because if they can own their universe, then, then I can impact their universe. I don't have to control, you know, direct, lead, lead their universe, right? And I can, I can free up mind space. And, and, like, I work with, like, in a domino effect, so everything's the next domino. And so if a domino doesn't fall, then I'm stuck, you know, figuring that domino out right. and, and different things, too. So. So that's some of the things we're doing culturally. I mean, we did all the like important things. Like, are you guys doing healthcare for your people and, and, and that kind of stuff too? Like we stepped in in COVID just to be competitive out here was to recruit really good people. We, we didn't feel like we could be competitive in recruiting the best people without, you know, those health, without offering, you know, some extended stuff from a healthcare standpoint. All of our team are independent contractors. So, oh, I gotcha. I got you. So you're 100% independent. Gosh, I can't even imagine like if we counted independent con with all the construction people in our business and stuff, how, how deep that would go. What do you think, like where the world's headed in the next two years, like with inflation economically, like, like what are you preparing for? What are you planning for? You know, I think that um, I think we're going to see persistent inflation. I think this could potentially be strong inflation. I don't know if we'll necessarily go into a hyperinflationary scenario, but there's a non-zero chance of hyperinflation, let's put it that way. But I think that we will continue to see persistent inflation. And I think that we will con um, continue to see uh, you know, strong inflation moving forward. I just don't know really what levers the government has to pull at this time. Um, you know, previously raising interest rates was definitely an option. The trouble with that now is that if the government decides to raise interest rates, which historically would bring inflation back down, the debt 
that we have. Our, our debt to GDP ratio right now is something like 123 or 122%. So raising interest rates would cause the debt service payments to take up a huge chunk of our GDP. And that would necessitate that we would have to cut major programs, cut spending in major programs, social spending and things like that. And I think that that a lot of people will push back on that. So I'm not sure really if the Fed has the option to raise interest rates as aggressively as they might otherwise need to in order to curb sort of this runaway inflation. And you know, what kind of happens is when people start to see inflation, price inflation, specifically in consumer goods and things like that, they go, oh no, and they start to buy more because they're afraid that the price is gonna go up in the future, but then that causes increased demand and then that causes the prices to start to increase. And you get this sort of inflation spiral of people buying because they think the price is gonna go up in the future. So they buy more now, but then that pushes the price up. And I don't think that we're gonna see that come down anytime soon. Um, so it's a concern. So for me, like we, we experienced a lot of high interest rates when the pandemic first hit. So as an investor, as a real estate investor, right, we, we were facing anywhere even from 10 all the way up to 15% interest rates on stuff that typically right now we're doing 4 or 5% interest rates, right? And, and so with our returns, you know, it impacts, but it doesn't, it doesn't you know, de-escalate our ability to make money. I don't know that they can raise, like, you think there's a lot of variable rates and that's where it's going to affect the debt so much because people, as if they raise interest rates, it's going to hit variable rates and there's that many much variable rate debt that's out there? I, I do think that that's part of it. And um, I think that even the interest rates on, on things like bank accounts are going to go start, or right now are at zero and have been at zero for many, many years. So when those rates start to go up, then that's going to also then affect um, bonds and things as well. Okay, interesting. Um, people loved the stuff you shared with crypto the last times and and some of the, the the things like where do you think you know crypto's at in the last year the last two years not the last year the last 90 days the last six months because crypto changes so fast it really does and i was i was trying to remember what the price of crypto was even when we did our last conversation um i know it wasn't fifty seven thousand dollars and they're 58 or 56 or whatever it is right now um so i think there's definitely a significant portion of the crypto community that is wondering if crypto is going to hit, or if Bitcoin will hit $100,000 by the end of the year. I don't necessarily think that we're going to see that, um, but there's there's a, a model that um, many uh, crypto investors follow called stock to flow. That's released by Plan B. He was it's a pseudonymous name. Um, he was, I believe, an investment analyst or an economist. And what he basically talks about is he looks at the, the moving average of the price of Bitcoin and then charts where he believes that the price of Bitcoin will go to. And historically, the stock to flow model has really held up from a pricing perspective. And what the stock to flow model says is that Bitcoin will be worth $1 million per Bitcoin by 2025. Mm -hmm. Now that might sound like, wow, that's, that's crazy. But really, that's 16x from here at $56,000, $57,000. The price of Bitcoin has gone up 16x just in the last year. 
So to do another jump of that 16X and hit $1 million per Bitcoin, I, especially in the next two to three years, I don't think is out of the realm of possibility. So if you're, if you're new to the crypto space, if you haven't invested in crypto before, you have to be ready to um, weather Endure. ups and downs, right? Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly volatile asset class. It has spectacular, spectacular rises and corrections. So it is a risk on asset. It's something you need to be aware of emotionally before you get into crypto. Um, but I think it can serve a powerful role in your portfolio as a hedge asset as well. And I think what you get into too is people want to trade it, right? Like day trade it or trade it back and forth and they want to try and capitalize upon the rise and the fall. And, and I always fear for people that aren't elite at it, right? If you're not an expert at it, if you're not, you know, amazing at it, then, then you, you could get, you could really struggle. Right. And I know that there's like paper trading and there's other ways to get experience and practice in those kind of things. Because like for us, we bought our first Bitcoins, you know, a decade ago and, and we hang on to them and, and enjoy the, the, the ride. But for, you know, an average person to, to, to say, I'm going to buy something at $56,000 and say, I'm going to hold on to it. And I, you know, I know that people can buy proportion, you know, portions of, of Bitcoins and those kind of things now. So then it becomes challenging. But I, so my, my marketing team, you know, they're constantly posting things for opinions or for voices. Right. And so I was reading a Dave Ramsey, you know, and, you know, I remember like when I first started, you know, my financial journey 15 years ago, he was one of, you know, one of the experts that I paid attention to his stuff, right? Because I loved his emergency plan stuff, right? Setting aside, you know, the right of money for an emergency stuff. But there wasn't really much else on his plan that, that I was, you know, really agreeable with, right? And like one of the things he talks about is not investing in Bitcoin or not putting money into Bitcoin and those kind of things. And I think it's, you know, kind of a different way of thinking. He also said that real estate should only be paid for 100% free and clear, which goes against everything that I believe. So, so I'm just curious, you know, like when you see different people out there, like speaking their financial stuff into the world, like how do you take it in or what do you, what do you advise people? Like, yeah, that's better. How do you advise people? Like when they're taking in all of the different information, like how do they discern? It's a good question. So, well, first of all, I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not yeah. a financial advisor, so I don't give people advice, but I do greatly believe in educating and empowering yourself so that you can make the right decisions in accordance with whatever your risk tolerance is and where you are at different stages of your life. You know, someone that's listening to the podcast that's 22 years old, that's earning a strong living is going to have different needs and a different financial outlook than someone that's maybe 79 years old and no longer working. So people have different needs at different stages of their life, of course. But you know, the thing with, you know, any news today, um, including crypto news, is it's trying to separate the signal from the noise. And there's a lot of noise. So what I think some people do is they just start going down the rabbit hole of crypto Twitter. And there's a lot of uh, people that know what they're talking about on crypto Twitter. And there's a lot of people that have no idea what they're talking about. Um, I think that there are some really valuable voices to listen to. Um, Actually, hold on, I have a quick book I could share. So this is a great place to start, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati. Um, I think listening to anything that Balaji Srinivasan has to say, uh, you can follow him on Twitter. At, I think it's Balaji S. He's 
a genius, has a lot of wonderful things to say. Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, has been a very vocal proponent um, for Bitcoin, holds Bitcoin on their corporate balance sheet. They have actually hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin on their corporate balance sheet. Um, and they're a publicly Three traded billion, company. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's an incredible. Um, um, Bukele, who's the president of El Salvador, the first nation that has now accepted Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, you know, there, it's, it's just, you can really start to separate the signal from the noise a little bit easier these days. And what we're seeing is that legacy financial institutions, your Goldman Sachs, your JP Morgan, who may have historically poo-pooed something like Bitcoin or crypto are now having their own trading desks or their own digital asset councils where this is a big arm of their research. So crypto is here to stay. It is going to be a part of the financial conversation moving forward. So I think that educating yourself and empowering yourself to decide then what your risk exposure should be to holding crypto in your portfolio is really important. Um, I don't know what the right amount of Bitcoin or other crypto for you to hold is, but it's not zero. I agree. I agree with you. Like we we have gotten deep because we have so many regulations with what we can invest in and can invest in and stuff. And so we've been able to create you know side pockets with with our funds and to be able to buy you know diff, diff, different crypto and, and and smaller portions to our full percentage of our fund. You know, which is real estate. But I think having that balance is is unique because you need you need balance. And I think that Definitely. comes with with the information you take in. Right. It's very easy to get trapped into. A left or a right, you know, echo chamber. If you're if you're consuming media and different things, and you got to be able to, like, be able to like hear the difference between biased, one-sided opinion and and truth. And that's that's I think a lot of challenge for people is they have to seek like re real answers. Like for me, when I say someone who's just beginning, right, and just just like Rachel, right, I'm not a financial advisor, but we're both fairly successful people. We're both fairly wealthy people. Or I should say we're both successful, both wealthy wealthy in, in our own regards. And at the same time, we also work with a lot of people who are figuring out what to do financially, what to do with their money. And and like, you know, Rachel's really a big part of her, her life and business is about helping people protect, you know, what is theirs. And, and so for me, I constantly look at what is the right advice in the different phases within people's lives. So like for me, one of the things is, is I always believe when somebody's just beginning, people are always like, well, you got to start investing somewhere, right? You got to invest that hundred or a thousand dollars. And this is kind of like different than the, 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 the mainstream opinion. My opinion is your original money invested in you, right? Like expand your ability to earn. So I think a thousand dollars is unlikely ever to turn into a million dollars, no matter how good the returns and the interest are. But if you can take a thousand dollars and somebody can expand their ability to earn by $10,000 in the next year, right? You've expanded yourself by a thousand percent return. And so like for me, that original investment is always into like figuring out what you are, right? And what you're capable of doing, but also figuring out what your best genius is because my best genius is real estate. There'll never be a day in my life that it's going to be crypto. Like I'm never going to give out crypto advice. I'm never going to tell people to do, you know, there was a time last year where I was hearing different things where I, you know, advised, you know, a lot of our investors, hey, it might be a time if you're going in and out to come out for a little bit before you go back in. And, and, and I was lucky enough to be right for once, right? When it comes, when it comes to crypto, but it, it, it's interesting when, when you tell people about like self-discovery, what would you tell them for entrepreneurs, right? For people who, or investors, what would you tell them like personal self-discovery? What would you tell them to, to start from? 
Well, I think that you really touched on something great, which is that, you know, investing can only take you so far and it can take you really far, but it can only take you so far. But business ownership and entrepreneurship is a massive lever to be able to pull in your life um, as far as from a wealth creation standpoint. And, um, you know, when you are making yourself more valuable, then that helps to increase your ability to earn value in the form of dollars. I think um, a really great book that I that I love um, is called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And she's a psychologist and she talks about the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And one thing that I've noticed among a lot of very successful entrepreneurs is they have a growth mindset. If they fail, they pick themselves right back up. They keep moving forward. If they encounter an obstacle, their response is, I love a good challenge. And then they find a way to overcome it. And if you are either beginning in the entrepreneurship game or you've been a business owner for a long time, inevitably you're going to encounter challenges. You're going to encounter obstacles. Um, was it Bruce Lee that says, fall down seven times, get back up eight? I think that persistence and that growth mindset is one of the most powerful tools for entrepreneurs because that doesn't matter what field you're in, doesn't matter what business structure you're in, doesn't matter who your clients are or what you're serving. If you're dedicated to constantly improving yourself, eliminate the victim mentality. Um, Derek Sivers, a, a wonderful writer, he has a book called gosh, I hope I don't misquote it, something like, it's all my fault. And it's this idea of radical ownership of what if everything that went wrong in my business, I could say, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault, instead of passing the buck on to someone else, then I have ownership to try to find a solution to that problem. So if you are an entrepreneur, if you're a business owner out there, then that radical acceptance, it's, it's your fault, it's your fault. And that means it's also your ability to be able to change it and, and connect that with that growth mindset, that constantly looking for new challenges, new obstacles so that you can overcome them. That's what I think really separates the winners. Yeah, we had some interesting conversations, you know, in our offices, you know, recently, and, and, and it, it's fascinating as people go through these different growths. Like for me, I always see growth as it's kind of like a city with the lights completely turned off, like the power has gone out. And then as the power comes on, you see each new building, each new block with the power going on. And so for me, I constantly feel like the power to the next building, the next block is, is, mm -hmm. is being turned on. And, and like the more blocks I turn on, the more of the world I see that's turned off. Right. And, and, and so it's like the open vision of like I see the next that, that that's closed every time I open the new block, you know, or the new the new the new obstacle or the new vision. And it's kind of one of the ways one of the ways I look at life. And so we were in staff meetings recently and one of the things we ran into is we were doing you know there was a correction in the meeting with speed right i always think time lag is a killer of business i think it's one of the biggest you know things that can can keep a business from being successful or keeping a business from growing timeline did you say T time lag yeah time just lag. time lag okay. right like the time between a proposal and a decision or the time between a decision and implementation or the time between implementation and, and reality and 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 so we were talking, you know, about time lag in that situation, and my team member he started to get a little bit defensive, right? And and you know, he got to a place where like he, you know, was I could see the frustration, like the physical 
frustration in that moment. And I, and I just, you know, what I, what I said to him was like, in this situation, there's no need for defensiveness, right? This is us, this is us just forgetting out what the next step in the process is, what the next piece that we need to go into in order to not have this lag, not to have these pieces, you know, in the future. And, and so as businesses, oftentimes you have the present action of today, and then you have the layers that are being built towards the future and towards beyond. And so that's really can be challenging for some people to balance within both, but not everybody's supposed to balance with it within both. And so for me, like from a growth standpoint, I always have the, the now, which is the health and the healthy mindset of like what you and I are, you know, functioning on a day-to-day basis. But then it's like, what are the long-term growth? What's the long-term focus? And, and those kind of things for me, for me too, I think is big. I always tell people too, like, when people like are putting themselves out like as idols, like like as a like the only answer, the only like this is the only way, and this is the only way to grow, or this is the only way to be, or this is the only way to handle money, or this is the only way of anything, right? I always tell people those are those as they're trying to discern between great information and information that they they need to take what it is makes sense for them, right? Is is staying away from those kind of false. Anybody who thinks they're the only answer or, or all the answer is, is is leading people astray or leading people down down a bad path. And I would even say with media, too, that, that like when you're listening to media, when there's there's not a, a dual argument, then then people like if people can't see both sides of every single situation. It, it can be, you know, really challenge, really challenging for you when you look at issues. Do you try to weigh both like both the, the yin and yang of, of an argument, even if you have an opinion about one side of it? I do. I do. I like, I, I'm a big fan of playing the devil's advocate. And, um, you know, a phrase that I really gravitate to is strong opinions loosely held. So I will come right out of the gate with a strong opinion. But if you give me a viable counterpoint to it, then I'll abandon that opinion if I need to and then pick up the new one. Um, so I have strong opinions loosely held. And I do like to try to see the other side in arguments. Um, I mean, I was on the debate team in high school and college. So I think that's just something that I naturally gravitate to is trying to poke holes in different things. And I think that that can be really helpful. Um, I, I might get this wrong, but I know, I know that Walt Disney, he had his team in different groups. There were the dreamers, the cynics. Uh, there's another one. I'm, I'm, I'm totally going to get it wrong for the people out there that know it, but the dreamers and the cynics, the jobs of the dreamers are just to come up with all of the ideas. Just let your mind flow. And the job of the cynic is to try to poke holes in all of the dreamers ideas so that they could come to that middle ground of what can we actually deliver that's going to be amazing for the park goers, for our mo- movie viewers, etc. So I often if I'm in a, in a conversation with someone and they're playing the dreamer, I really like to be the cynic and I like to try to come in and poke holes in the argument because I want to see that it can be defended and make sure that we're shoring up weaknesses. Yeah, I like to argue against my own argument, like to, to figure out in my, my, my own head. It's in uh, for the holidays, right? We had an interesting spirited Thanksgiving at, at my house. So we had a, a good, great conversation about government control and gun control and vaccine control and and those kind of things and and you know I, I definitely have a voice and an opinion about each each of those subjects and and you know as people started to discuss them or argue them in different ways I just was asking like well what are your 
Like, which, where does that come from? Like, where does your opinion come from? Or where does your, where does your, like, you have this voice about what you believe is right and wrong. Like, but where does that come from? And, and because, because to just have an opinion about something to me isn't acceptable. And that, that is really challenging for people that have really strong opinions about something, but have never gone through the process of saying, I've backed up my opinion this way. I've backed up my opinion that way. So, so I, I always find like, I, I, I like, I love to source, like, where does the opinion come from? Or is it just, just something you think? Did you ever see the Joe Rogan where him and Candace Owens talked about her view on climate control and different things? No, I, I love I love the Joe Rogan experience, but I haven't seen that episode. And and there, there's a really good clip where Candace Owens is talking about a little bit about climate change, right? And and her opinion, and and then Joe kind of comes at her a little bit, and he's like, like you're an influencer, like if you're gonna have that opinion, you need to be able to back it up. You got to go and have answers. Like I saw that recently, and so like. For me, like more of things that I have opinions about, I started diving deeper into like, what is my backbone behind that? Like how strong is my backbone or is it just an opinion that was built by, you know, the political atmosphere from growing up or the political atmosphere from different people or the relationship, you know, with different different aspects or is it my own opinion that I've truly formulated from a deep dive in re- research and stuff. With you guys growing so fast, like how much information are you collecting like for growth or are you sometimes or, or do you do you just say I've collected to this point right now I'm going to focus more on growth than I am on 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 collecting more information about growth with what you guys are going through um I'm not sure I totally understand the question I mean we're always doing research when it comes to um but how you're I'm more, more mean like how you're going to do it like so for me I there's times like when we go through rapid growth phrases I'll kind of We'll build a plan and it's not like I don't stop collecting information in the world, but like getting outside consulting or getting coaching or getting advice. Like I, I'll make a decision and say, okay, here's how we're going to go. And, and once we've made that finite plan, we're going to implement versus focusing on, 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 on getting more or is it nonstop for you even while, while you're growing and stuff? Well, I think that we have a plan on how we're growing. So that's something that, that we're implementing. Um, so we're not slowing that down for, you know, we're, we're open to opinions, but we're not seeking right now uh, to deviate from the growth from plan. From the plan, yeah. yeah. We recently went through one. So like, if you've ever heard of an Opportunity Zone fund, mm-hmm. um, so we recently, you know, had a lot of our investors kind of hit us with that hard. Like you guys have to have an Opportunity Zone fund because, you know, they're already investing with us in different ways. And so we had, we did a, you know, pretty hardcore pivot is, is in September of opening a brand new fund, you know, which doesn't usually happen overnight. That's, you know, all opportunity zone based. It's a great based way to avoid 1031s. It's a great way to avoid 1031s. Um, and, and, you know, but that deep dive, you know, was a pivot in the middle of staying congruent mm. Got with it. the plan, staying congruent with the plan. How do you, how do you not get deviated from where, you know, you and Jeff's long-term vision is? Well, I think sticking with the plan just for the sake of sticking with the plan is, you know, sometimes the death kiss for a high growth startup. You have to know when the time 
is right to pivot. Um, so that's something that Jeff, our CEO, is always keeping a finger on the pulse of the market, on how the organization is growing to know if and when there's time to pivot. But I think that when you're when you're mission driven, which we are, and I know that you are, then you know your mission is still to empower investors. That might look like an ozone fund. It might look like a different type of, maybe it's a tax lien basket fund, maybe it's doing a side pocket of crypto, but you're still not deviating from that mission, that mission to empower your investors and help them build long-term wealth. So I think that as long as you're clearly connected with your mission, any kind of little you know detours that you're taking are still moving you towards that end goal. Now, when Biden came out with the potential executive order, right, for changing, you know, what a qualified investment is and stuff like with IRAs and, and, and those kind of things. Was that just as impactful in the 401k industry? Did you guys, I mean, how did you guys feel when the that- The Build Back Better bill, the reconciliation bill? I think that, so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was, yeah, originally, the original language of this bill that was called the Build Back Better bill. So there was the infrastructure bill, which is a 2,700-page bill that nobody read that started out, I think, at $3 trillion, then it went down to $2 trillion, then it was $1.7 when it finally passed. Um, and then in addition to the infrastructure bill, there was a social spending bill, also known as the reconciliation bill, also known as the Build Back Better bill. A lot of elements of the Build Back Better bill are great, um, and they're really attempting to embetter our world with things like universal pre-K and social programs. A lot of those, are, are, there's a, a strong proponency for those social programs. What weaseled its way into the bill that I didn't really understand was a lot of provisions that were going to be very detrimental to IRAs. So for example, um, one of the provisions was going to eliminate the ability for an IRA account holder to invest in anything that required you to be an accredited investor in a private investment. So for example, any real estate fund, any real estate investment trust, any hedge fund, crowdfunding deals, um, private equity, private debt. If these are private deals, and when I say private, I mean they're not traded, they're not a publicly traded security. If these are private deals that require you to be an accredited investor in order to invest, this bill was going to take that ability away from your IRA to do the investment. This would have been incredibly detrimental because a massive part of the self-directed IRA space is exactly this, is letting IRA investors invest in things like apartment syndications, hedge funds, real estate investment funds, crowdfunding deals, private equity, venture capital, angel investing, et cetera. So the first iteration of the Build Back Better bill was going to be very detrimental. Fortunately, that provision got thrown out and it has not come back in, thank goodness. Another IRA provision that crept into the bill was saying that they were going to close the backdoor Roth conversion. In other words, they want to eliminate the ability for anyone to convert pre-tax or after-tax IRAs to Roth IRAs. Part of the reason they, behind this is they said they want to avoid you know, people, billionaires, trying to game the system. The sort of little story behind this is Peter Thiel, 
um, one of the original PayPal, uh, PayPal mafia. Um, he made an investment of some private stock with a Roth IRA that then became worth billions of dollars. So he's got a lot of money in a Roth IRA. And what the IRS is, or the government is essentially saying, Congress is essentially saying is, that's not fair. People shouldn't just be allowed to be billionaires for no reason. And they're trying to, you know, say that they're closing this back door, the ability to invest these, um, uh, do these back door, these Roth conversions, because they want to make it, you know, more fair, a more even playing field. Unfortunately, though, what I think is going to happen is the opposite. It's usually normal middle-class Americans that do these backdoor Roth conversions or a Roth IRA conversion. Why? So that they can grow some of their wealth tax-free. When you have money in a Roth IRA, you don't have to pay taxes on those distributions. You can pass that Roth IRA down to your heirs. There's no required minimum distributions. It's a really nice way to be able to grow generational wealth for normal working class and middle class Americans. Unfortunately, this part of the provision is still in the Build Back Better bill. The bill has passed in Congress. It's going through the Senate right now. I'm hoping they'll take a big black marker and cross that provision right out. I think people should be allowed to convert their funds to Roth if they want. That is their sovereign choice. It is a taxable event. Remember, if you have a traditional IRA, let's say you have a hundred grand in there and you decide you want to convert that hundred thousand to a Roth IRA, you have to pay taxes on that conversion. The IRS is making money on you on that conversion. So I think that that is a dangerous provision that's still in the bill. I'm hoping will be X'd out once it goes through the Senate. And I would encourage people to reach out to your Senator, let them know that you um, don't want that provision in the bill. I mean, I think there's, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans, right? Whether it's today or 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, right? That a provision like that literally will be a big part of stealing their retirement. A hundred percent agree. And, and the government has proven, like with Social Security, it's not a good retirement for folks, right? Like, like it's not enough money for people to live, to have a continued lifestyle. It, it, it's turned into, like when I was a kid, Social Security wasn't, was people who lived off of their Social Security um, were living. Yeah, right? they still had a pretty normal was, life. That was, that was the extent of it. But, even, but in today's world, Social Security, people can't live off of that it becomes a supplement or an addition to what they've had to figure out in order to retirement. And they certainly can't sustain a continued lifestyle, right? Through social security. Cause even at its maximum highest benefit doesn't even meet, you know, our minimum standard of living in the United States. And, and, and for, you know, more than 70% of our country, you can't even like, it's not even a, a base base level living, right? Not even the medium, not even anywhere close to medium standard of, of income. And so like, if people don't, control their own retirements if they can't you know i get that when people need help you help them and that's i think what social security is right sure. for, for for people that have no other option but i think that's really what social security is, is is it's a supplement to people that have no other option whereas you know your average american needs the ability to grow their money because right now if your money doesn't grow in an inflation world or a hyperinflation world you might lose 10 15 even 20% right of, of, of your value of your money. And if you're stuck investing into only a few chosen right investments, because that's what it becomes to me is if, if they limit IRAs or an investor's ability to invest that way, they, 
they, they, they start to trim down and they start to try and control what you're allowed to invest in, which is one of my frustrations from the beginning for us is why we wanted to open to non-accredited because I also don't think it's, I think it's unfair that non-accredited are very limited in what they're allowed to or they're not allowed to invest in too. Like that was one of my great frustrations when we first opened our first funds was we're so limited in the amount of people that were non-accredited that we were allowed to invest with us became a frustration. That's why we spent, you know, a million dollars and, and, and all of the work to, to become who we became with Rad being a being a reg A and, and all of the, the red tape so we could allow all of the non-accredited investors to invest with us, but they're still incredibly limited, like even with the rules that they're allowed to do with us. And so I just think when you allow the government to control money, what have they proven to us that they've, like where has our government ever proven they're successfully controlling money, I guess. You know, there, there's where my first, my frustration comes into, and I, I know you're about, about about to share, and I, I got on a rant, so. Well, no, no, you know, it's interesting that you then, you know, tie it back into inflation and strong inflation and maybe even hyperinflation. Another provision that's still, still in the bill today as it is written is that there's a cap on these IRAs and Roth IRAs, and if you go over that cap, then you are required to distribute the money out of the IRA or the Roth IRA. So now not only is this this bill saying we're not going to let you move the money around or invest it's how you choose or decide where and how to convert it, but also if you have too much money in your IRA, we're going to force you to take it out and now it becomes taxable income and loses its or or it would lose its tax deferred status if it otherwise would have been allowed to remain in the retirement plan. I mean, to me, if you want to tax billionaires, tax billionaires, right? And, and, but I also don't have like some type of ill-gotten like hatred towards billionaires. Like, cause I'm like, man, that's freaking amazing. Like, I think people who've built great fortunes or great wealth have created some of the greatest things on the planet, right? So, it, and they it's also like, tend to employ tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, thousands of, people. of people. And, and so, like, what they actually produce with money is just so much more. Right, than, than handing the money off to a government where, where like the endless debate of what to do with money and the inefficiency of money is because, like, I think most politicians' bottom line isn't to say, hey, let's go make the government successful, right? It's like, hey, what's my priority? And, and so they're trying to figure out what is their initiative or their priority versus what the right decision to make this program or this thing the most successful possible and so so the money has never fixed our government and but i you know we wouldn't have two you know private space programs right if it wasn't for billionaires right we wouldn't have you know the the alternative energy right if it wasn't there's just so many different things there and so that 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 i you know whether you call it fomo maybe that's not the right word the envy of of wealth is 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 very challenging to me because I, mean, I think when I was a kid, because I grew up poor, I think I had an envy of wealth. I would see the nice car, or I would see the big house, or I would see the different thing, and I would start to get, I, you know, I'd get that there was tension with it, and, and, and there was an energy behind it and an understanding of money that I didn't understand growing up, and a frustration. And I think there's where the hatred, or that maybe hatred's not the right word, but the, the ill opinion, right, of the very, very wealthy is and at the same time it's kind of like as you grow older and you become more successful and you've gone through this 
journey to become successful, you start to have more of an appreciation or more of a respect, right? For that build, for what it took for that sacrifice. You know, it's not like Bezos and, and, and Musk were, were billionaires, you know, 10 years ago. And, 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 and the, the 20 years they spent before they achieved, you know, mega success, you know, people don't spend enough time comprehending or understanding that or the, the personal sacrifice or risk. You know, I don't know how many divorces they've both been through, but they've both been, 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 through, been through a few. Definitely. She's like, are you going to ask a question? Uh, no, no, I actually, but well, what's I, your opinion hard, on I have the hard stop. Oh, I was thinking we were hard stopping for some reason in my head a little bit longer. So we, we'll, we're good on the hard stop, right? Um, we'll, we'll cut that last little piece out. And then the piece where I asked you about healthcare, we'll probably cut out too. Um, just because it didn't fit. But, but thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me, Dutch. It's always awesome to get a chance to chat with you, to see you, and to hear about the good work that you're doing. Thank you for listening to The Rad Podcast, an exploration of wealth. For more information, please visit our website, www.raddiversified.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. 